Take your Bibles, turn with me to the book of 1 Kings, chapter 19. 1 Kings, chapter 19. We are finishing up our series of messages on the prophet Elijah today. It's been a good five-week series, started with Elijah's call and appearance upon the scene of being fed by ravens and then raising a widow's daughter, the clash on Mount Carmel, and then last week his kind of low point, the depression that came in after that. And today it's a little bit of a different kind of story about Elijah because it's not a, it's not a message about Elijah. We're going to finish the series of messages on Elijah with a sermon on someone else. That picks up where we were last week. If you were, if you remember last week, there was this time when Elijah's in the mountain. He's kind of in the cave. God passes by in tornado and in fire. But nothing is what he thought. And that's not really the moment when God speaks to him. And then he comes in a whisper and Elijah says, here I am, kind of, what do you want me to do? And so this is what he tells him in chapter 19, verse 16. It says, you are to anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, as king over Israel, and Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel-Meholah, as the prophet in your place. A couple of things for us to know here is that this is the specific calling of God on Elijah's life to follow his succession plan. And here's what's amazing about what is going to happen in this transfer of power from Elijah to Elisha. Now, if you've noticed over the last few weeks, a few times we've been doing Isaiah on Wednesday nights, and a few times I have mixed up the names Isaiah and Elijah. Imagine today what's going to happen with Elijah and Elisha. Right? It's all together. And so, in this moment, God says that it's time for you to pass on the legacy of who you are. It is time for you to pass on the responsibilities of what you're called to do. Now, Elijah doesn't stop ministering in this moment, but he passes it on to Elisha. Now, let me just ask you this question, all right? In general, if you were to ask people the most famous prophets of the Old Testament and you were among people that kind of knew the Bible, or people that didn't know the Bible, how highly would Elijah rank on that list? High, right? Up there. Like Moses and Elijah, right? Where would Elisha be? Take you a while to get there. Well, there's Elijah and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel. Take you a while. The amazing thing is that Elisha performed twice as many miracles as Elijah. And has significantly more real estate in Scripture dedicated to him. And here's why that's important. Most people think Elijah had a school of prophets that kind of followed him around. Elisha would have that as well. And one of the things that they wanted to do is they wanted to leave the next generation more prepared and more able to impact the world for their God than they were. And that's exactly what Elijah did. Here's the reality we need to realize is that our greatest legacy is the people we leave behind. 
It's not the cash that we build up. It's not the career accolades that we have. It's not the trophies on the wall or the case. It's none of that. Our greatest legacy is the people we leave behind. Now, parents, that means that your greatest legacy is not in what you provide for the people that are left behind. Your greatest legacy is not in the stockpile of a mass of riches or lack thereof and what you leave behind for your children. Your greatest legacy is what has been built in them and how you've led them as people. And what we see in this particular story that we're going to read today is that Elijah invests in a moment, but it's a lifetime investment into a nation that places Elisha in a proper place to be able to be used by God. I thought about this today in particular because, it's first of all, it's a fun story we're going to read. It's one of my favorite stories in Scripture. I know I literally say that every week, but it is. I love the story has some of the coolest moments, and it's a very short story, and all of God's people said, I didn't say short sermon, I said short story. And so you have this moment, but I thought about it today because our kids are in here. It's family worship today. Our kids leave tomorrow, students leave tomorrow for camp. Next Sunday when we're standing here, we're going to have a decorated stage, and I'm going to be in a VBS t-shirt because VBS starts a week from tomorrow. Right? And this summer we've got several events, and sometimes we say, we talk about stuff, are you investing in the next generation? Why are you investing so much in the next generation? Why do you make such a big deal about VBS still, or about camps? We did a week of, a day of extravagant giving last week, and you all did an amazing job and gave um, over $15,000 last week for camps and mission trips. You can still give, all right? I'd love to come back next week and go, now you've given over. That's going to make it easier for our kids to go to camp. Why don't we do that? Because I believe that the greatest legacy this church has is not in this building that we have built, although it is a great building I'm glad to be a part of. It's not even in the programs that we have. It's in the people that we developed and those that we leave behind. And if we fail to raise up the next generation for the glory of God and the spread of his kingdom, then we have failed what God has called us to do. And so today, we're not going to have a series or a message about a man named Elijah. Instead, we're going to have a message about a man named Elisha. 1 Kings chapter 19 says this, starting in verse 19. Elijah left there, by the way. He went immediately and found Elisha. That's the first thing it tells us. He appoints the prophet before the king, son of Shaphtah. And as he was plowing, twelve teams of oxen were in front of him. And he was with the twelfth team. Elijah walked by him and threw his mantle over him. Now, we'll talk about this in a little more detail later, about the mantle being thrown over him, what that signifies. But there are a couple of little notes that we need to kind of know here in the midst of this. And the first thing is that you notice it says he had 12 teams of oxen. Now to us that means absolutely nothing other than he had 24 ox. Right? In. He had 24 of them. And they were plowing. 
But you have to understand that in that day and time, the average, middle class, normal person had maybe one. Or if they were a little upper middle class, they had two oxen. So if Elisha has 24 oxen, what does that tell us about him? He's rich. He's got a lot of oxen, which probably means if he's got 24 oxen, you don't put 24 oxen on an acre of land. Because they ain't no use. So if he's got 24 oxen, not only does he have a lot of oxen, what does he probably also have a lot of? Land. This is the wealthy man. Now, most people think that he's a fairly young man. He's somewhere in the 18 to 30 year old range. God's going to use him for close to 50 years. So that takes a little bit, right? And so you've got a guy that already at this age, now maybe inherited that. We also know his family probably were God-fears because his name means kind of the Lord saves. Elijah is, Yahweh is my God. Elisha is the Lord saves. It's not that far off from Joshua, which is the name, the Jewish name, by the way, of Jesus. And so he had parents that were building him up into this. Elijah comes along. He's this wealthy owner of land and oxen, and he's plowing. And I don't know how this really happened. I like to envision this like a game of stealth tag that's happening. Where Elijah just runs up and throws the mantle on him and runs away, kind of like, gotcha. But that's probably not how it happened. He was probably in a field where it was hard to hide. Here's what goes on after that. Next verse. Elisha left the oxen, ran to follow Elijah and said, Please let me kiss my father and mother and then I will follow you. Go on back, he replied, for what have I done to you? Right? A couple of quick things about this. Notice the immediacy of Elisha saying, hey, well, i got to figure out what's going on. He leaves the oxen. These are oxen that are plowing. This is like jumping off of a running tractor. Okay? Just leaves it in that moment. Gets off, runs. He runs after Elijah, finds him and says, hey, let me just go say goodbye to mom and dad real quick and then I'm on my way. And Elijah has this weird response to him and says, what have I done to you? What the point he's making here, the way the original language makes it sound is what he's saying here is, this isn't between me and you now. This is between you and God. So you do whatever God needs you to do and then come. Elijah basically said, I have passed off the responsibility to you. I have transferred this to you. I did what God told me to do. Remember that in a few verses before? God said, go anoint Elisha as the next prophet. He says, I anointed him. So when you come, I've done what you've asked me to do. I'm doing what you've called to do. So now it's between you and God. At some point... Back to the legacy talk. At some point in our lives, parents, it is our responsibilities to say to our kids, it is your turn to choose. Young people, you need to hear that. At some point in your life, you have to say, it's my faith. It's my life. And I'm going to live it for the Lord. Whether you grew up in a house that was on fire for the Lord, or you grew up in a house that didn't care a thing about the Lord, ultimately it's your responsibility. And so he says, okay, I'll go back and do that. Next verse says this. So he turned back from following him, took the team of oxen. How many oxen? Twenty-four. And slaughtered them. 
With the oxen's wooden yoke and the plow, he cooked the meat and gave it to the people, and they ate it. Then he left, followed Elijah, and served him. Let me just ask you a quick question. I know, I know, I know you may not have seen an ox lately. I hadn't personally, you know, petted an ox lately. I don't have those around. Are oxen small or large animals? Large. How many oxen did he cook? That is a feast. That is a Memorial Day barbecue to remember. Right? Now, now think about that. I mean, he, he fed the neighborhood. He's like, hey, y'all, come on. I got some food. What are we eating? My livelihood. All the things that I own. What makes it possible for me to make a living? Oh, oh, good, good. Tastes a little different now. Thanks, Elijah. Appreciate that. And not only did he cook the oxen with which he plowed his field, and a couple of those people may have been like, you know, I could have used one of those. I got, I got one about broke down over here. I could have used the newer model. What did he use to build the fire? The yoke and the plows. Elisha here completely left his life. Risked everything he had to do what Elijah said that God had called him to do. Why didn't he give the oxen away? Because he knew if he ever came back, those people give him back to him and he could go back to doing what he was doing. You think, well, are you sure he would ever go back to that? Do you remember when Jesus was crucified, rose again from the grave, and then kind of went away for a little bit. What did Peter and his buddies go back to doing? They went fishing. Because that's what they knew. That's what they were. Elisha's saying, I'm going to take any temptation I have or any ability I have to go back to what I was doing because I have a calling from God that is bigger than that. And so he burned the plows, burned the yoke, and fed his oxen to the neighbors. We get caught up in that because that is like a straight, amazing move there. But don't lose what happens at the end of that. After the community barbecue to end all community barbecues, it says he left. The understanding there is he left, like gone, like not see you later left, like I'm done, gone. Followed Elijah and served him. One of the things I also want you to notice about this is that the first thing that he did when he went in to serve the Lord is he went into training. He didn't become the man right away. He became the man next to the man in this case. It's an amazing story of someone who literally just said, I'm going to follow the Lord. A couple of things for us to think about in the midst of all of this that he saw that we can see from his life. And that this is, first of all, we need to realize the epic nature of the call of God on your life. Elisha knew that there was a serious need around him in the world for God's grace and God's word. He lived in a place of extreme idolatry, serious immorality, 
oppression among God's people. And in a remarkably similar way, we live right now in a world of idolatry, whether it's idolatry of money or sex or image or success around you might be, or idolatry of literally millions of false gods worshipped around the world, leading to all kinds of sin and strife and oppression and division. I mean, do I, I don't need to list for you the evidences that our world is filled with anger and hatred and vitriol and violence and oppression and deprivation. We see it on the news every night, the tragic events. And just in recent weeks in places like Buffalo and Texas, remind us of the violence that is there, what is happening that the world has almost just kind of become numb to in a short period of time of what's happening daily in Ukraine. Or what happens as the murder rates in the United States have skyrocketed, as uh, aggression towards one another is higher than it's been in a long time. And as we gaze even wider than that, we see a world where half the population lives on less than $2 a day. Where a billion people on this world live in desperate poverty. And where billions of people are headed to an eternal judgment who haven't even heard about the one who can give them eternal life. I don't mean to paint an overly bleak picture, but I do mean for us to have our eyes open to what's going on around us. We live in a world in need of the truth, of the grace, and mercy of our God. They need to hear a word from the Lord about how he loves them and cares for them. And we have that word and we know that grace. When we use the word epic, I do that intentionally. I know it's overused. It's overstated. It's not used in proper ways. But this word captures what God is calling each one of us to do. God was calling Elisha to take his word into the world around him, wherever God would lead. And that's what the prophet did. He listened to the word of God. He lived according to the word of God. And he spoke the word of God. And just like Elijah saw God's word bring rain and fire, Elisha would see God's word miraculously bring food to the hungry and life to the dead. What's interesting is when you look at the two comparisons between Elijah and Elisha, Elijah's power that came from the Lord demonstrated that the Lord God is God above all and that he is one superior almighty God. What Elisha's miracles often do is that that great mighty God cares individually for people. And you may say, well, that's Elijah and Elisha. That's not my job. Well, that's what you're saying. And you're missing the point. Jesus has called us and equipped us to be the image bearers of God in this world. And don't forget, as he was leaving, he said that we were to go and make disciples of all nations. That's what Jesus has called us to do. It means to go from spiritual, to, 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 to tell people how to go from spiritual eternal death to spiritual eternal life. And sometimes we're told that, well, well, that doesn't mean you necessarily. You just take care of the world around you. And while it is important for us to take care of the world around us and do ministry and mission to the world around us, that's not what Jesus said in his great commission. He didn't say, you take care of the world around you. He said, take the gospel of Jesus Christ where? To the ends of the earth. 
We live in a church culture that's tempting to say, just sit there, just sit, come on Sundays. If it's convenient, come on Sundays. If it's not, figure out how you can watch it online if you can't be there. Or if you can't do that, just it's okay to miss a few times a week or month or year or whatever it is. Just what's convenient for you. And just enjoy doing there. Serve a little bit. Drop a little money in the offering plate. Not sacrificially, not a lot, just a little. Just drop a little in there. Just do enough. And live all week long to make money and spend it just like the rest of the world. Spend it on possessions and things that really don't matter. Cruise through a casual, comfortable Christianity as you live it up in the world. That is not what God intends for us as believers. It's a compromise with the world and it's not what Jesus is calling you to in your life. It's a waste of your life and some of you are going to settle for it. You're going to settle for a good job and a good family and a nice car and long weekends and a few good friends and a fun retirement and an easy death thinking that's a success. But have your eyes open. You've been called to something epic. To make disciples. One of the fears that I have about what happened in the pandemic over the last two years is that we've isolated and insulated ourselves to the point that we're no longer able or willing to allow ourselves to be impacted by the lives of others and to impact the lives of others. We're no longer willing to go wherever God calls us to go because we're scared of what that might mean. And yet the call on us hasn't changed one bit because a pandemic came through. We are called to make disciples here and around the world. We are called to ask people to forsake the false gods that they have and to find their true life in Jesus. To not be destined to a road that leads to hell, but to be destined and come to understand and be delivered to a road that leads to heaven. Elisha, when you think about this story, would see God work in his life for 50 years. Miracle after miracle right in front of his eyes. And what I want us to understand is that God wants to work through us in a way similar to Elisha. The reality is, the New Testament says about Elijah, that he was a man just like us. And he prayed, and God brought the fire. God brought the rain. The truth is, Elisha was a man just like us. And with it, he compassionately fed people and saved people and saw people see the miracles of God. We are God's instruments today if we will allow him to work through us. You have friends, you have co-workers, you have neighbors, you have classmates, you have acquaintances. You run into people every day who don't know Jesus and are destined for an eternity separated from Him. So don't miss the epic nature of your calling. Jesus said that we were to be sent into every domain of the world to make disciples in this world. In all the marketplaces, in all the places we work, we are to give our life to this. And then if we get to retirement, if God allows us that, then that opens the door to spend more time devoted to the mission of the world. Among the nations. It's an epic call to make disciples here to the ends of the earth.
to join Jesus in his mission to spread love and mercy and justice and grace to the ends of the earth. And that call should dictate every single decision of our life. If you're a young person, the call to make disciples of the nation should dictate if and where you go to college and how you live when you get there. It should dictate what degrees you get and what career you pursue and how you pursue that career. It should dictate who you marry and whether or not that's what God's called you in your life. You should be looking for a guy or a girl who is, not, who is completely on fire for Jesus and if they're not, then you need to move on. Somebody abandoned to making His glory known among the nations. Those of us that are out of school, that are married, that have a family, we are to be looking how God has uniquely wired us for the spread of His glory among the nations. Look through, pray through different ways that He's done that. He's leading us into this place or that place, this job or that job, this neighborhood or that neighborhood, dictated about how it will impact the future of the kingdom of God. Don't buy into the lie that the purpose of your life is to get a great education or to be a great athlete or to go great places, to have a great career or make a lot of money. The purpose of your life is to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is to love God and to accomplish His mission for you. So everything we do should come from that mindset. Now I'm not saying everybody needs to go kill your oxen and burn them. Most of that's because none of us have oxen that we can burn at the house. What I am saying is, I'm not saying that everybody's got to become a preacher, everybody's got to become a missionary, everybody's got to. Be, uh, what I'm saying is that wherever you are, that God has placed you, your job primarily is to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. You make disciples of the nations, regardless of where you live and what you do. Whether you're a banker in Goodlettsville or a teacher in Yemen. A consultant in Greenbrier or a doctor in Saudi Arabia. Abandon your life to the epic call of Christ. The second thing we see in this passage is not only when you realize the epic nature of the call in our lives, we need to be willing to risk it all. We talked about this. Elisha knew that this wouldn't be easy. In that moment, he counted the cost and joyfully paid it. He made a fire, drew his blade, slaughtered his livestock, 24 of them. That was not a quick process. You ever think he got 18 in and thought, you know, maybe I'll just leave six. Burned his equipment and he went. I don't know all the ways that God is calling everyone in this room to follow him, to live out the Great Commission in your life. I don't know all the places he might lead us. All I know for sure is that you will not be able to follow him and not experience the sacrifice of the pleasures and the pursuits and the possessions of this world. The call to follow Jesus is the call to choose, sacrifice, serve, lay down your life, loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and all your strength, loving your neighbor as yourself. The initial... Disciples remind us that a call to follow the Lord is a call literally, in their case, to come and to die. 
And you read Fox's Books of Martyr, it's just amazing how those first disciples, those first apostles, ended their life. James was thrust through with a sword. Luke, who wrote one of the Gospels in the book of Acts, was hung by the neck from an olive tree in Greece. Thomas was pierced with a spear and burned alive in India. By the way, you notice how they're going to the ends of the earth? Philip was preaching in front of a large pro-council. A leader's wife came to Christ. Enraging her husband, he had Philip tortured and put to death. Matthew was stabbed in the back. Bartholomew was clubbed to death. James, the other James, was thrown off of a building. Thaddeus was beaten to death by sticks. Mattathias was stoned to death and beheaded. Simon the Zealot was crucified in Syria. And Simon Peter was crucified upside down at his own request because he didn't feel worthy to die the same way Jesus did. By the way, they died not because they called themselves Christians. If they had just sat back and stayed quiet, they could have lived nice, normal lives and died nice, normal deaths. They lost their lives not because they knew Christ, but because they gave their lives proclaiming Him. So remember when we read the Great Commission, that we are to go into all the worlds making disciples, that remember that it is a call to lay aside our pride and our comfort and our safety and our preferences, our possessions, our reputations, our lives, to make His life known around the world, to glorify God and expand His kingdom no matter what it cost us. Let me just say this to you as a church. We're rapidly approaching the time Well, I would have been here 15 years. That's like 100 in dog years, in preacher years, right? And some of you are like, yeah, it feels that long, right? Fifteen years. As I look back on that, I see God has done a lot of great things in our midst. God has done a lot of great moments. We've seen hills. We've seen valleys. We've seen great times. We've seen some difficult times over those 15 years. The question that I'm asking, honestly, right now, the question that I'm praying through asking is, and I do this every year or two, every couple of years, every new kind of season, and as I'm looking at this milestone, I'm asking the question, What are the oxen and the plows that we need to burn as a church to move forward toward the calling that God has on our lives? What are the things that we are doing, have done, have been a part of us that is not going to be effective in reaching this next generation for the gospel, for the sake of the kingdom? Some of you may have some things in your own life that you need to get rid of, that you need to burn. Some relationships that have prevented you from following the Lord. Some commitments, some fears, some doubts. Maybe it's a huge thing. Maybe it's a current job or a relationship that's been long term. Or it's something that's a big deal and you're like, man, I don't, that's a big deal. Listen, you didn't get any bigger for Elisha than what he did in burning his oxen and the plows. That was the biggest deal he could. That's like getting rid of everything in your every single possession you've got. It's like some of the early missionaries that would pack all of their stuff. Some of you may remember a few years ago when we had the open casket here at the front of the church for a sermon. They would pack everything they had into a wooden casket because wooden box because they said, where I'm going is where I will die. That was their suitcase. What's God calling you to get rid of? To leave no trace behind and to move on? Third thing we see in this passage that we need to do is we need to be willing to risk it all after we understand the epic nature of the call of God on our lives. And then we need to trust in the supernatural power of God. 
We realize that we can't do this without God's power. By the way, I love the picture of the cloak being laid on Elisha, the mantle. It literally was a picture of the power and authority of Elijah being passed to Elisha. It's a picture of how the presence and power of God would be with him as a prophet, which actually leads to to, to think about this reality that Elisha knew that God was with him from that moment forward. Elijah was saying, what God has been for me, God will now be for you. That's confirmed, by the way, in some of the miracles that come ahead. But in 2 Kings chapter 6, we see how this trust in the supernatural power of the Lord comes full fruition. In this story, by the way, and I'm just going to tell you the story, Elisha is referred to as a man of God. If you want to read it later, 2 Kings chapter 6, it's years after 1 Kings 19, it's years after this. This is as Elisha is kind of a seasoned prophet. And the king of Syria is warring against Israel and he gets mad because the king of Syria would make plans to go to war with Israel and God would tell those plans to Elisha and then who would tell the king of Israel what was going on and they would defend against it and defeat the king of Syria and the king of Syria got mad about that as you can imagine. If you were playing football and you were calling the play and God was letting the defensive player on the other team know what you were calling, that would be frustrating, right? And so the mind of the king of Assyria was greatly troubled because of this thing, it tells us in verse 11 of that chapter. And he called his servants and says, will you not show me who for us is for the king of Israel? He basically said, who's the spy? Who's the mole? Who's telling him what we're doing? And one of his servants, sheepishly I imagine, kind of hand kind of half raised, no, 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 it's, it's not us. God's prophet Elijah tells Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. The word that you speak in your closest chambers, Elisha knows because his God tells him. Then the king said, go see where he is. I will take him. He's in Dothan. So he sent their horses and chariots and a great army and they came by night and surrounded the city. And when the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots were all around the city. Can you imagine that wake up call? In the night, the army has gathered around. You get up in this little tent that you've made for you and your master, the king, the servant, your servant of the prophet. It's just you and Elisha. One can tell it's just the two of them out there. You get out, you stretch, you know, that little open, I don't know, you stretch. Is that what you do when you camp? I don't camp. But, like, stretch out, you're looking around, and as you look around, you just notice there's a huge army there. He goes back in and says, Master, what are we going to do? There's an army, like an army, not like a couple of guys, like an army is out here. And Elisha says, don't be afraid, for those that are with us are more than those who are with him. Now Elisha's servant is panicking. He says, listen, we got more on our side than they know. Now if you're Elisha's servant at this time, you're like, what are you talking about? Verse 17 of that chapter says, Elisha prayed and said, Lord, open their eyes that he may see. As the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. He says, God, show him the supernatural power that is on our side. The army fails in capturing Elisha. In fact, they are blinded and led away to Samaria, and at Samaria, the king of Israel captures them. 
In this scene, back in chapter 19 of 1 Kings, Elijah passed the mantle onto Elisha, and he knew the supernatural power of God is with him. And here's what I want us to understand. In that same passage where he says, now go into all the nations, Jesus does, to us, to his followers. Do you remember what he says right before that? He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He has laid the mantle of his authority and his power on us. And he says, go do the work. We have the cloak, the authority of Jesus. And he tells us that he will be with us to the ends of the age. We have to trust in the power of the one who has called us. And let me just tell you, it will require sacrifice. It will require some plow burning and some ox slaughtering. Now literally don't go home and burn anything, okay? I'm just feel like in our world I have to say things like that, all right? But the reward will be absolutely worth it. Elisha never regretted burning the oxen because he did what God called him to do for the next 50 years and his life was a fire for the glory of God. My desire with whatever time the Lord has given me left and it's less than it used to be. And it is every day that I will spend it on fire for the Lord and His calling on my life. Not to build this church, not to build my reputation, not to build my family, but to glorify God and extend His kingdom. My prayer is that we'll have a church full of Elisha's willing to do the same. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray in this moment that you would give us wisdom as you help us to understand what it means to follow you. I pray, Lord, if there are plows and oxen that need to be burned in our lives, that we would be willing, glad to give it up and to burn it for your glory. And Lord, that we would be obedient to what you've called us to do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.